0: Hey, Joe.
1: So we're doing some pre-roll.
0: Yeah, pre-roll. Rolling with the pre-roll. people's favorite part of the of the Oral Argument Sushi is you the pre-roll. You gotta
1: love it. And we do it, it's a post-roll pre-roll. It's a post-pre-roll.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Which is to say we've already had the conversation they're about to hear.
0: So this week in our ever our, our never-ending quest to have different sounding episodes every week <laughs> to mix people up, we're in Oral Argument World Headquarters with our... With our, uh, you know, scotch tape and, and shoestring
1: equipment. Which still sounds, I think, wonderful. It can sound okay. It can sound okay. I think it sounds great. It takes more effort on my part, but, you know. You make it happen. You make the magic
0: happen. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes. Um, but today we've got um, Jim Gibson. From Richmond Law School. Awesome paper.
1: Terrific conversation.
0: Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com oral at gmail dot com or at oral argument on twitter you can go uh you know if you click on like uh, in your podcast app if you click on the the episode title it'll probably take you to our website where you can see you know we've got an index of topics and all of our past guests and and there's show a, notes there's and a contact that. form there's all that junk on there yeah. so you know hey here's a
1: question for you are yeah. we starting to it looks like uh from the twitters uh, that we're starting to pick people back up from drops that were made in the in the Ooh. sort of the limit of all that stuff it. yeah, I'm glad you
0: mentioned it because is that true? Well, so so here's what here's what happened. So you know, sometime around welcome back, dear sometimes listener. <laughs> around, sometimes around the in, end of February, some change was made on Squarespace that stopped forwarding our old RSS feed. This is in the weeds; nobody cares about this. But it, but it stopped forwarding our old feed to the new feed address, right? And, which means that if you had subscribed earlier. And you were using, using
1: something a, like Overcast, using
0: a podcast app, which did not take the right cue because, <laughs> you know, we have it so that it says, you know, every time you down, hey, you're using the old address, you might want to use the new one. Right. But if your podcast app ignored that and says, well, OK, I'll go to the new one. But but next time I'm going to go right back to the old one. If it kept doing that, then all of a sudden it stopped working at the end of February. And, and you're like, oh, there are no new shows for like five weeks. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's a bug in Squarespace. And in some podcast apps, a refusal to kind of update to the new and I got in touch with Mark. So it's the interaction it. of mul- yeah.
1: of these different things that together produced together a, what looks like a disappearance. Right.
0: But I got in touch with Squarespace, and and they were they, I have to say they were all, for such a big company now they were awesome. They they uh, escalated it up their engineering chain and found a workaround for me. Cool. And so I put that in, and boom! All of a sudden, people see like five episodes they didn't yeah. know were there. So so welcome back. But I have to say, so a reason to talk about this now, Joe, is. If all of a sudden you saw five episodes show up and you're like, oh, they had been doing this in my in my uh in my absence. There have been recordings that have happened. Unsubscribe from our show and resubscribe. That way you can be sure that you've got the new feed and this won't happen again in case there's an mm. error in the future. So yeah. I want everybody on the new feed, the new feed address. Even if we end up migrating again, Joe, we'll, we'll have that feed address. It yep. will work, right? It was just the Squarespace one was a little bit funky and we didn't want to carry that So that, that would
1: over. be a hedge against a future thing would just be unsubscribe, resubscribe.
0: Unsubscribe, resubscribe.
1: Yeah, You know, the
0: last thing you want to tell people at the beginning of a show is, hey, unsubscribe from our show. <laughs> right? I was just thinking that. Yeah. So, make, <laughs> so, so make sure you do both actions together, the unsubscribe and the resubscribe. Right.
1: Now, Christian, in Ooh. terms of, uh, I'm so glad that you're, you're, uh, taking it up with Squarespace and the way that it cycled up and the way mm-hmm. that you, you got a solution. Now, what did the boilerplate of your subscriber Ooh. agreement with Squarespace say about how these things would be handled if such problems arose?
0: Yeah, so, so this, is, this is one of the um, 100% of contracts to which I'm bound that I have no idea of the terms of.
1: Mm. Sounds like there's something worth talking about. There.
0: <laughs> All right, let's get Jim on the horn. Jim, hey, he- hey, Hey,
1: hey.
0: Yeah, we we can hear you just fine. It was uh, so we started with, like I said, with a USB cable not properly plugged in, like halfway plugged in, and that caused all kinds of consternation. And uh, and we got to figure it out. But then it's after that, it's just the usual nonsense. It's Skype reverting to preferences that it should right. not have. You uh, know what I
1: figured out? I figured out Skype is God because Scripture says that God is hidden. I thought it was because God is dead. Uh, that might be true too um but but skype is always hidden in the way that it it likes to change settings and whatnot so therefore skype is god i have that right don't i oh boy
2: (laughs) and it's always there
1: (laughs) it's a a brooding omnipresence and it does exactly right (laughs) it feels like
0: it's often angry
2: (laughs) and vengeful it's sort of like old testament god i think (laughs) that's right
0: that's right oh Oh. so i I apologize for being a few minutes late but we are glad to have you on board jim
2: no, I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to be invited. I I've shaved and everything.
1: <laughs> do well, you do you really do you go by Jim most often or James or what are your no, preferences?
2: It's, it's definitely Jim, please.
1: Okay, okay so, it's,
0: so it's not we we shouldn't address you as James Madison Gibson then.
2: No, yeah, you guys should okay. call me Professor Gibson, but my friends
1: okay. call me <laughs> <laughs> not Dean Gibson. Okay, that's very casual of you. No, yeah, I'm much
2: prouder. Of, I'm much prouder of Professor than Dean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think I there, I, there are a
0: number of deans and associate deans who. Who probably look at that professor appellation quite longingly? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: I I number myself among them.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. so so, uh, so Jim, when when I saw you know Joe books our guests and and finds interesting things, He's always finding interesting uh, topics and people to talk to, and um, I actually started reading your paper. Last time, mistakenly thinking you were on a week ago, so this this just shows. Like you talk, you talk about having shaved. Like Joe can attest, my hair is not like it's standing up, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, a like, little bit. You got a little bit of bedhead <laughs> So everything. There was a time zone issue this was All kinds of nonsense. But uh, so so I started reading it last week and and then realized that I had it had it wrong. And I was I was exci- I've been excited all week knowing that we were going because as Joe can tell you. I've been excited about this boilerplate issue for a long time. I mean, okay. what, one of the things I tell my students, it really doesn't even matter the class. I'll find an excuse to, to, to bring That's this true. out. That's true.
1: You're on a hair trigger with this particular Ugh. issue.
0: You find a way to say to them the following. That to a first order approximation, no one actually reads any contracts ever.
2: Uh, yeah, that's, that's probably an accurate statement. Um, and, uh, and I, I can't imagine a class in which it wouldn't come up because, uh, much, much, <laughs> much like Skype, it's pretty much, you know, a brooding omnipresence that rules our lives.
0: Well, I, actually, I mean, so contract is of course, but, but, but boilerplate contract, which is what you've written about here and what we're going to talk about. We'll link up the, the, uh, I think the highly accessible article in the show notes, um, that these contra- people don't even know they're entering contracts. They enter a store to buy something, you know, a physical store. There, there are contracts governing this, you know, this license that you get to enter the store, and there's a contract about the sale. Like all of these are invisible. they boilerplate contracts and contracts of adhesions. Adhesion in general are brooding omnipresences in the sky, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, what really bothers me about the boilerplate side of things is that it looks so much like a contract, um, and that people tend not to question it. Whereas, you know, some of the other things that I think we would revert to contract law to, to resolve questions like walking into a store or, or, uh, my favorite is the little signs on the backs of trucks that are filled with dangerous debris that say, um, you know, make sure you leave at least a hundred feet between this truck and, and your car. Um is that a contract? That, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I think someday I want to write an article called like private declarations of law, you know, where people <laughs> essentially sort of say things and then people assume they have they have some sort of legal meaning. Um you know, and my favorite thing about that example is you, you have to be much closer than a hundred feet to read the sign in the first place. But um that that these sort of uh policies statements by uh vendors sites stores sellers corporations um are sort of magically imbued with legally enforceable power without anyone really kind of kicking the tires and figuring out why that's the case
0: and and in particular with boilerplate it's well i mean we can talk about the the, the its its characteristics before we get into you know you kind of go through the modern defenses of boilerplate and then uh, and then your kind of reformation of the idea about how we should treat these things and, and kind of doing away with the all or nothing approach to them. But uh, but before we get there, I guess, uh, you know, some aspects of boilerplate, which with which people are familiar are, you know, you're aware that there are terms there, but they're so long, like buying a car, or leasing a car or uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, opening a, p- a new piece of software that no one actually reads these things. You know, you see or, terms or booking and, a plane ticket. Exactly. Yeah. Well, right. this is the United Airlines thing that we talked about. You know? And
1: inter- and it's interesting that it, it, it exposes the way that it's boilerplate because people are making assumptions in the immediate aftermath of that. And then it takes a few days and people actually start reading the ticket contract. And right. Yeah. Have all sorts of interesting discussions about what these different terms might mean. And uh, and and they it really demonstrates in a very vivid way the fact that it's all after the fact right no one had any idea what these things said before the fact but, but of course that do, that doesn't
0: stop you know internet tough guys from saying should have read the contract
1: right well sure I mean,
0: and it, there's there's almost a morality imbued in the idea of voluntariness which is a total fiction here right <laughs> that, like no one has voluntarily entered any of the terms it, you know
1: yes and that and that, and those declarations by those you know, sort of Twitter eggs in, were immediately followed, of course, by people actually reading it and right. actually talking about what it actually said. Right. Um, uh, and as one could almost have certainly predicted that what it said was quite different from what those Twitter eggs were assuming it said. So there's the, uh, in any yeah. event, um, I mean, there's
0: the other side of boilerplate, too. And and I don't know if it's worth distinguishing these and maybe I'm taking this off, off course a little bit. But, you know, one kind of boilerplate with which we're familiar is the wall of words in a contract that you skip over in order to get to the thing that you want. Right. Uh, the, the, the other is the sense of one sidedness, right, that it's it's partly boilerplate because it is immune from any kind of change. Like these are take it or leave it terms in the classic sense of that, but not just not just take it or leave it as in I'm driving a hard bargain, but it, as in just kind of everyone just knows that that, you know, when you see this wall of words or or even if you don't see it, but, you know, it's there, there's no point in trying to negotiate. Right. Um,
1: Well, Jim distinguished very carefully between adhesion and boilerplate. So Jim, spell that out and why it's important to be precise about it, because I think it actually turns out to be important to be precise about it.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the instinct shared certainly among sort of the general population and to some extent among lawyers who haven't thought about this stuff too carefully is that the problem is adhesive terms. Right. The problem is the notion that you aren't allowed to negotiate and and you're presented with with, um, you know, contracts of adhesion, right? That's where the term comes from. Um, and boilerplate itself actually has an origin in the same concept because my understanding of the origin of the term boilerplate, uh, is that it was terms printed on, uh, uh, sort of very heavy stock metal, uh, for the purposes of replicating it in, in, uh, you know, sort of the classic printing press because they knew they were never going to change it. So they could use really durable, uh, material, you right. know, for the, for the print. Um, but to me, the, the question is not so much whether it's a take it or leave it proposition because tons of things we do in the modern economy that we consider unobjectionable are take it or leave it, right? Um, you know, you go to the store to buy a loaf of bread and you know if the bread is sliced too thinly for your uh, uh, preferences, you don't sort of bargain with the supermarket to re-slice the bread. You know, it's a take it or leave it proposition. If you don't like that bread, don't buy that bread. You know. Uh, the price is almost always a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, so it's an adhesive term in that sense. Um, but because we're aware of how thinly the bread is sliced, we're aware of what price we're paying. I don't consider those boilerplate terms because the market can react to them. And if you know there's something to be said for more thickly sliced bread, some enterprising supermarket will start offering it.
1: And, uh, and you as a consumer can can decide that you'd rather not get that bread and you'd rather go to a different store in town or you'd rather bake a loaf yourself or whatever. Uh, and and so market forces are actually affecting the the over the over the long haul affecting the thickness yeah. at which bread is being sliced. That's how exactly I exactly. Right. That's how I wanted to think about it. Like that that that
0: and this is a, a broader and adhesion broader, doesn't
1: adhesion right. doesn't make it immune from market forces. Not
0: necessarily, but right. you know there's a but there's a broader concept I think in in contract of, of terms which are subject to market discipline. And those which are not subject to market discipline and boilerplate as distinguished from adhesion, like the boilerplate as in wall of words that no one reads um, is is one is one category of contracts or one category of terms in contracts uh, that turn out to be immune from market discipline. Unless there's another theory, right, rather than the, right. the classic voluntary consent theory, which we can which we can get right. into. Um, I don't know if there's a broader category, but at least that's one of the that's that's the problem.
1: So let's think in two by two terms. Is there, Jim, in your view, is there any boilerplate that is, which is um, a a species of adhesion terms, I take it, um, is there any boilerplate that is exposed to market force uh, discipline or not?
2: Well, I mean, I think... According to my definition of boilerplate, the answer is no, because my definition of boilerplate is essentially unread terms. And and I don't think the alternative theories for market discipline uh, engaging with unread terms uh,
1: are any good. (laughs) So so their Um, unreadness actually leads them to avoiding market forces. Well, there's
0: one – there's one defense of boilerplate that i i that you go over it's not the i think the best possible uh, the best explanation is maybe Posner's and bebchuk's reputation one but we'll get to that uh and right. and what you have a problem with there jim but 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 one possible answer like where where boilerplate actually is exposed to market discipline is when there are kind of um Contract term entrepreneurs like, you know, Electronic Frontier Foundation or, you know, who, who go into these – you know, there, there are groups which go into these license agreements in order to expose terms that actually would matter to consumers if they had the time and energy to, first of all, read them to the legal knowledge to understand what they would mean and then also the time to think about why they would be objectionable. That does sometimes happen, Jim, right? But would you consider this like such a – like these, these uh, contract term entrepreneurs, would you consider them like so – Uh, So rare in relation to the wall of terms and all the contracts that it's not worth thinking about in terms of the overall law of boilerplate.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly where I'd come down on that. I think you're right. You know, it would be nice if there were a, you know, consumer reports for boilerplate terms, right? You know, somebody who did the work that the rest of us don't have time to do and kind of presented it. Um, And, you know, the sort of classic Chicago school would say, hey, you know, there should be information intermediaries that crop up in order to fulfill this, this need. Um, But, you know, their their uh, existence and activity are are so infrequent uh in relation to the amount of boilerplate we have to deal with that they may as well not exist, right? Um the other, you know, the other way in which I guess something that we could call boilerplate would be subject to some market forces, I think is just about as sporadic, um, which is like the United Airlines case, you know, when there's really bad PR, you occasionally see someone get exercised about Instagram putting some new term in uh in boilerplate and someone reads it and a journalist picks it up or it becomes a a, a social media story, and uh, they back down, um, and you know, I—that's I, I, you know—that's certainly the market in the sense of the aggregate uh, desires of the consuming public having an influence on the content. Uh, but again, I mean I think that happens so rarely that um, in in trying to s- think about this uh, systematically, it's not really a, a moving part. So,
0: so the reputation hit that you get from having the term which is discovered by somebody who may or may not be an entrepreneur. It may be happenstance that they run across this. But now with uh, information technology as it is, they can widely disseminate pretty easily and costlessly uh, this information. So that's, that's one form of discipline. You take a reputation hit because you have the term in there that people find out about. That's not the posner bebchuk explanation, right? Because th- th- theirs right. is that it's okay to have these terms which are essentially adhesive terms, which may be boilerplate. Maybe no one reads them and and certainly no one negotiates them because my sense is they kind of talk about both of those at the same time. But may- maybe I'm wrong. But that the discipline comes in in that they there's an asymmetry of, of – in addition to an asymmetry of like writing the terms, there's an asymmetry in terms of reputational hits – from later con- behavior under the contract, and so a a business which has one sided terms which favor it heavily and could be used unfairly, but which in fact does use that unfairly, may take a reputation hit in the market. So you, you know United Airlines, which enforces the the um the the carriage contract exactly is written and drags off a a passenger and and doesn't actually have a, a a market competitive reverse auction for giving up one seat you know maybe the contract allows it but if they actually exercise those terms to the to to the to the maximum extent that favors them they'll take take a as they did they'll take a reputation hit whereas the consumer is probably not a, a very visible participant in the, um, in the reputation market. So if I, you know, if, if, if there's a term that favors me as the consumer and I exercise my rights as, you know, maximally, I won't really take a hit. And so there's a reason to give kind of a one-sidedness to, th- that's the explanation that Posner and Bebchuk give, right? That there's a reason to give the power, the formal legal power in the contract to the, to, to the, um, to the business with market power because they actually will exercise it reasonably. Because of reputation, what what do you think about that? Is that? Did I say it right? And do you do you agree? With yeah,
2: that? no, I think that's exactly right. And I have some sympathy for the argument that there's this you know this adverse selection problem that businesses face, and that they have reputations and consumers generally don't. And so you know it's they need some means to differentiate between the the good consumers and the bad consumers. And by bad consumers, I mean the oppor- opportunistic consumers who will use uh, the threat to the company's reputation, for example, as a means to extract something uh, more than what they bargain for. Um, and so, you know, and, and so, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, you know, Poser and bubcheck are smart people. and I, I think that has some, you know, I think that has some theoretical heft. Um, my problem, I guess, is if reputation is going to do that much work and I'll return to whether it can in a second, but if it's gonna do that much work, um, I'm not sure why we really need the boilerplate at all. Um, in other words, if things become essentially a customer service issue, uh, and that, onerous terms will not be enforced against the regular role consumer because of the worry about a reputational backlash, then what are the contract terms for? They turn out to do a pretty small job, which is being used as a backstop against the few opportunistic customers that are going to somehow leverage their ability to do reputational harm into some sort of unfair extraction of value from the company. I mean, that strikes me as a really kind of attenuated justification for boilerplate, yeah. uh, you know, writ large. Um, and, and it also assumes things about, you know, the ability of the company
1: to differentiate between the good and bad
2: consumers, which I don't think has any empirical basis.
1: Um, well, there are ways to deal with, there are ways to form reputation uh, that, that affect the consumer side, things like credit scores, yeah. uh, having declared bankruptcy, um, and and occasionally, uh, especially florid examples will show you that you know, for example, the the fact that there are many, 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 many banking institutions that that, that apparently will not deal with uh, the person now the president of the United States uh, because he's known to be such a, a shirker and forsaker of debt um, that, that that demonstrate even in the low grade versions of credit scores and such that there are ways to develop reputations as a consumer. That make you undesirable for producers, for, for sellers. Um, and interestingly, the, there isn't a boilerplate mechanism at work there. There's just a report. There's just information, right? You 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 get known as a person who won't pay your credit card on time, or or bounces a lot of checks, or whatever. Um, and then that credit score can even leak into things like, or, or be used in things like trying to rent an apartment. Um, uh, and I think even Quite distant things. I think there are some people who check credit scores in the employment market. I I, ha, I have real concern about that. Uh, but and whether it's uh, you know fair and prudent in some b- basic sense. But in any event, um, it, so there are ways to do this. That again are about information and not about the need for a boilerplate term.
2: Yeah, which seems to which seems right. to support
1: yeah. your argument that what is this really all for? if ultimately there's a a robust reputation market with some reliable mechanisms that can operate there.
2: Yeah. And I think that, I think that's right. I think that last point is particularly important because there's a lot of assumptions about in the, in the Poser and Bebchuk, uh, literature, and there's others who've written on, on the reputation as well about sort of the robustness and reliability of essentially the market for reputational information. Um, which I think is really questionable. I mean, sure. Uh, what you might call sort of specific repu- I'm making an analogy here to, to uh, um, deterrence in the criminal law con- uh, uh, context where you have specific deterrence and general deterrence. Um, specific, I would think of reputation as operating the same way. We have specific reputation, that is our individual experiences with a firm. Um, where I imagine the reputational information, although somewhat anecdotal, uh, is accurate. Uh, I know what my past experiences with that particular company are, and they probably, to the extent they keep a record on me, know what their experiences with me are. But the Bebchuk and Posner stuff sort of assumes that reputational hits are not just about the disappearance or appearance of repeat customers, but about the, uh, the, the general sharing of reputational information with the public at large, and that accurate reputational markets essentially will develop so that consequences will follow when one customer has a bad reputational experience that informs other customers, that's a really questionable assumption to me. I think it probably happens in some context, but think of all the other ways in which companies manipulate reputation, uh, advertising, for example, right? You know, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and to sort of say like, Oh, reputation will take care of this problem. Uh, uh, you know, as someone who, uh, like you, Joe has thought about trademark law, for example, strikes me as a really, really questionable basis, uh, to, to enforce, Boilerplate. I mean, again, the the attenuation of the argument yeah. is really gets me, not the fact that it doesn't have any, you know, sound
1: basis. Yeah, the reputational issues are there and can be dealt with on their own terms, and, and there can be mechanisms, be you know, anywhere from Yelp reviews to uh to constraints on on firms' efforts to manipulate the contents of customer reviews. I mean, these are issues that deserve their own treatment and stand on their own two feet, and and can be dealt with in their own terms and are. Um, and don't really seem to need to to, to um, and really it, I think you you've argued in the paper actually just as a matter of fact don't provide a foundation for thinking about boilerplate. Yeah, they're exactly. their own thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and and I actually I plan to write an article on sort of reputation as a and reputation markets um, at some point when probably I'm not an associate dean anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I I think there are some information intermediaries working pretty well in the, in the uh, reputation market. Um, You know, the, the, the Yelps of the world, although they certainly have their flaws at, you know, the trip advisors, right. You know uh, um, the sort of bottom up sharing of information. So I think there's something to be said for reputation market working. Uh, But I think the assumptions that it's going to work well and that individual customer level satisfaction or dissatisfaction is somehow going to register with other customers automatically is, is, not right, um, and and even to the extent that reputational markets work well, um, I also think they're overwhelmed by uh, advertising and marketing and the value of brand in some ways that that might make the. Gains dissipate. Um, if we're kind of looking at the overall ways people think about companies and make choices about which ones to give their custom to. So,
0: so what about this other explanation, which is I think kind of related? If you think about it from the consumer's perspective, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm mainly interested maybe in price and and salient features, and I'm evaluating whether to go. I don't know whether to go on a cruise or, or buy a computer or something else. And, and maybe I look at reputational markets enough to know what, how likely it is I am to have a problem. Like I just, if I'm not going to have a problem, then I want the terms to be kind of strict enough against consumers to avert like opportunistic, um, opportunistic profit making by um, enterprising plaintiffs firms, maybe <laughs> in, in order to reduce the price. And, and, and the, and the trade-off for that, that, you know, arguably maybe consumers are willing to make Is rather than a kind of an insurance scheme, so that um, the price is a little bit higher for everyone, and and we kind of insure against bad outcomes through higher prices. uh, We all pay a lower price, and I know that I'm accepting a low probability of getting totally screwed, you know. Um, and and I mitigate that by looking at reputation markets. But so this, like, it's kind of related to the reputation idea, but uh, it's more firmly located in in your paper in this idea that. Um, uh, at least the one of the defenses that you point to is that consumers are actually shopping mainly for price, and they it, it, they, they don't they don't actually care about these
2: terms. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, but price as the salient term, I think, is a better place to locate all of that stuff. Um, in other words, you know, if, if we're if we say, look, uh, there's a gain from introducing a contractual term into a transaction. Um, as long as the contractual term attracts the attention of both parties, you know, and so is subject to market discipline, um, that's great. Uh, but to the extent that term isn't salient, it isn't subject to market discipline, it's actually more efficient to to take the gains and kind of fold them back into price because price is always a salient term. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know. Um, I have to think about that a little bit more. I, I I don't know that whether it's a reputational factor or not matters a heck of a lot there.
0: I'm just thinking of you know trying to kind of build up from a, a microscopic to macroscopic model, and I'm just thinking about the way consumers choose things. And uh, you know, if if you're you know if you read on Amazon that this product breaks a lot, or you're likely to have an issue, where you've got to get involved with you know, <laughs> well, you have to get involved with the company again. You're gonna have to do a return if you're gonna end up in customer service land, where that may go badly. Uh, you're just less likely to kind of pull the trigger, and and maybe that indicates that. You know that your ultimate resort is just to a reputation market, and 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 so you're willing to kind of, you know, in exchange for price, if you can be sure that that's a low probability event, you're willing to accept the low probability that you're going to get screwed in the deal. All right, that, that's kind of I'm kind of thinking about it, but
2: yeah, no, I can I can see that working. I can see that working. Um, uh, again, I mean, I'm not sure you know how much it applies to specific enforcement of specific boilerplate terms. I and mean, one of the things, you know, one of the 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 Pushbacks against my article I haven't heard anyone make yet, but probably will, um, is that, look, you know, your final section actually says that most terms in boilerplate are not that far a departure, if at all, from the underlying default rule. So what's the big deal? Right. 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 You know, why do you care? (laughs) Why are you so exercised about its lack of enforcement if not enforcing it is going to lead to the same result in a lot of a lot of uh, places and i think you know the, the question is sort of uh there are aggregate effects um sort of death by a thousand cuts uh that i think it won't bother an individual consumer all that much but over time um or through the aggregation of millions of different transactions uh you know, shift a lot of wealth, you know, mm-hmm. from consumers to companies. Um, and, uh, you know, setting aside the, you know, the sort of, well, I shouldn't set aside, it's almost mm-hmm. a flip side of class actions, right. the in, yeah. in, you know, in, in, in the sense that, uh, uh, you know no one cares about a s- tiny small loss but in the aggregate they're actually really problematic in the same way no one really cares about a term that just alters the default rule a little bit but in the aggregate you know that's actually uh, a big deal
1: yeah there's a th- there's a sense in which as i was reading the paper i kept returning in my mind to the to, to notions of arbitrariness and the the existence of these terms in boilerplate that that in a case i mean maybe in any particular case it it, it it doesn't seem so bad or you can tell yourself a story about it, but, and maybe that's what's happening in these famous cases like pro CD or Hill or whatever. But, um, but you know, I, I mean, I'm concerned about it for the same reason that I would be concerned about, uh, you know, a, a, a huge metal object, uh, stuck on the outside of a factory that every once in a while sent out a huge lightning bolt and, and that, <laughs> and that hit whatever happened to be there. I mean, sort of like everyone in the factory knows to not go near it. um, the people who walk by don't necessarily know about every once in a while, someone will be there or a dog will be there or something like that. Um, and that seems bad, but, but gosh, you know, people get hit by lightning and storms too. What's the problem? Um, the problem is you don't need that damn metal thing sticking on your factory. Right. I mean, it's not actually accomplishing something beneficial. So it's just cost. Um, and I, and I don't, so, so why put up with it? Um, Like i it's flipping the bit on on who should bear the burden of justifying this this practice yeah um and my that's at least that's how it played out in my mind
2: yeah, I think that's right i I agree, and I think you know- not, that's not to say that there aren't some you know, more frequent lightning bolts that, that boilerplate shoots at us. I mean, I think the best example is the one that probably gets the most attention in the case law, uh, which is uh, the elimination of class actions through the sort of manipulation of the Supreme Court's love affair with arbitration clauses. Um, uh, you know, it's surprising, actually, how few arbitration clauses one finds uh, in boilerplate. Um, I think this was an observation that came out of the United airlines flap that i don 't think there was an arbitration clause in there, which makes some sense because arbitration is actually a cheap way for a consumer to get at a at a, uh, a company um, but what they but when you do see them they 're always married to class action waivers and uh, and that avoids unconscionability judgments because uh the class action waiver and the arbitration clause are hand in hand, and the Supreme Court insists uh, that the pro federal policy toward arbitration so the pro arbitration policy of the feds uh, means that that has to be enforced, including the class action waiver part. Which I that, think there
0: are several errors compounded <laughs> to Yeah, create exactly a really right. counterintuitive, yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: yeah. let's back up. We we jumped too far ahead, I think, too quickly in terms of, so let's back up and ask if you're, what courts seem to be, uh, come around to uh, in the contemporary era is that um, that boilerplate doesn't, fall into traditional notions of of contract offer and acceptance because people have paid no attention to it. However, because the underlying philosophy of contract, right, the reason that you
0: is a bargain people for people to, to be bound by these private rules, the rule of law, right, the, yeah. the force of the state is going to stand behind these duties to which you agreed, and the and the underlying normative justification is that well, you agreed to it, and you're right. the best judge of what's good for you, <laughs> right, right, um, and so pareto w- which is intuitively very
1: appealing, of course. I, I mean, I think there's a great wisdom and merit involved in that conclusion, but it is right critical in, that it's a bargain for exchange, right, up until you realize that. Again, to a first order,
0: every contract that people enter is not voluntary in that sense.
1: Right. No, nah, nah.
0: no. It is not not, not in the sense no, not in the sense that, that we just meant. Like I said to a sure first it is order because, approximation.
1: Because by, if I if I'm clicking yes on Amazon to that book I want to buy at that price, um, that's the, we we just agreed to the main terms. They agreed to send it to me at that price. I agreed to take it at that I did, price. I didn't say
0: anything about the main terms. I said that to a to a first order the, the private laws to which you are the private duties that you were taking on. Like, you, you know about none of them.
2: Well, you, you well, know about, you know about, none about none of some of them because, because, you know, in point of fact, the delivery terms and the identity of the item you're buying and the price are actually contractual too, right?
1: Yeah, uh-huh. this is, and this is why the severability thing is such an important point of what, right. what Jim has argued, which is why mm-hmm. I want to try to get to it. So but what,
0: there's an awful lot of law to which we technically agree under contract law as to which we don't actually agree in a common way of speaking about agreement, right? That, that we don't, because we don't know it, right? Voluntariness means no, it includes knowing, right? And right. for many, 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 many contract terms that we enter daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, we just don't know their content, right? And so that, this is the problem for contract law. Like it's built around an assumption of, you know, the classic deal, the two people, you know, shaking hands, coming to terms, and, uh, and, and yet that doesn't happen for for many many contracts. And so what if that's not there? If that normative uh uh you know that 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 kind of um uh engine for for normative reasoning is no longer there, then what can replace it? And we've talked about a couple of different options for for boilerplate. Um but supposing those don't work, then then the traditional responses have been either we enforce it for those reasons, we just you know, it doesn't matter that there wasn't really offer and acceptance, or it does matter, and we should basically replace a lot of contract with regulation, this is the all or nothing approach, this dichotomy that you criticize, Jim, right?
2: Right, yeah, Um, although, I mean, I think that I might quibble a little bit with the term regulation, right? I mean, an essential, uh, no contract is complete, there's always stuff left out that we're gonna have to fill in the blanks if that becomes, you know, part of a later dispute, Um, and so there would just be more things to which we would refer to the applicable default, right, on right. Hand. But that—that's
0: that, yeah. core to your argument, right? Your argument kind of yeah. proceeds from that basis. That—that that right. the reason the dichotomy is—is is one reason, one way to see the dichotomy is false is precisely that that. that
1: I, I just don't, Christian. I just don't understand the way you're framing this. So help me, help me understand it better. It, it, if the very, if the very thing in question is whether or not we should include in a contract the things about which you have no knowledge, and therefore could have could have formed no agreement, given no extent, uh, if that's the very thing we're trying to figure out, what sense does it make to insist that we're all taking on contracts we have no knowledge of? Right? That's the thing we're actually talking about, Wait, is, I, is whether those things should be treated as part of a contract. Right. I'm making two points. One, I'm making an empirical, you know, it's an empirical hypothesis
0: because I haven't actually done the empirical study, but like I'm just using... Like introspection of my daily life, if yeah. you like, right? That uh, that most terms that bind me, most contract duties under which I'm under, under which I'm under, even though they may not likely, they may not be likely to occur, and this is the, this is, I think, the
1: key point, right? Um, I'm unaware of, right? Like, it, and you say they bind you because under current law, the way courts seem to react to this stuff is to enforce, yeah. Them. Whether it's Pro CD or something else, like
0: all the software that I have up here running on the machine uh, has many, many, many terms. Uh, About If this happens, then that, right? So I'm under many contract duties. I'm aware of 0% of them, right? Probably to one decimal place, (laughs) 0% of them. And, uh, and, and yet like, so, and that is that my, my claim here is that that is the vast majority of our contract world, right? The vast majority of private duties under which we labor.
1: Just numerically.
0: Yeah. Just, numerically. Now, uh, you can make the argument that like, like, it's unlikely that we will be asked to perform one of those duties, right? Like arbitrate in a particular place or sue in Washington right. rather than my home state. Like, because for exactly the, and this is why it may be rational for a consumer to ignore all of these, right? Because it's unlikely yeah. to. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but but if that's the case, if most of the, you know, the vast majority of the duties under which I labor, um I don't actually have knowledge. And yet the underlying, you know, the, the, the basic kind of normative theory under which many like lawyers operate, right, is that there is offer and acceptance and we have this classic like story in so, our head. So so then what so what do we do with that? And and the and the two like I said, the dichotomy to which Jim points is either we just pretend that this is like every other uh, this is the pro cd view from the you know this case where it, what it doesn't matter that this is boilerplate it doesn't matter that it's this is not the classic picture it's going to be enforceable and there are other reasons maybe we can refer and the other one is no this is this is not like a contract and we need to depart quite a bit and jim takes a
1: middle path okay i thought jim was taking the the second path so so jim what path are you on
2: yeah no i would have said i've taken the second path as well i mean i think what i'm <laughs> i think what i'm saying is is to me kind of both inescapably obvious and radical right <laughs> like you know i i'd say you know i start the article by saying the jury is in on whether people read boilerplate and once we decide that that they don't it seems to me uh, inescapably correct that if we're looking to fill in the blank we can't possibly turn to boilerplate right if 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 there's if a dispute arises and it is not with regard to a salient term um We're going to have to reference some standard to settle that dispute. Uh, It's just the dispute can't come from boilerplate because it's essentially irrelevant scribblings of a lawyer in a room somewhere. Um,
1: Well, and very very self-servingly for one of the parties. I mean, that's the thing that, in my mind, makes it most objectionable. Not that it's a scribbling of a lawyer, because so will the default rules be a scribbling of a lawyer. It's the difference between being a party to the transaction trying to – serve yourself and only yourself to the greatest imaginable degree, or being a lawyer who's scribbling and trying to serve some sort of down the middle, what's a reasonable way to approach this, or what's a way to encourage people to disclose more information or or what other, whatever your other theory of default rule might be. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I resist trying to get too into the weeds about how unfair the terms are because I'm actually at my core, a big believer in the sort of hands-off approach to the content of contracts, you know, to the sort of private ordering notion. I'm very attracted to that notion, so I don't want to start saying we shouldn't enforce contracts because they're unfair. I don't want to impose my judgment of what's fair and unfair except, you know, at the extremes on contractual content. I'm really process-focused. Now, if you're really process-focused and you're saying we should defer to default rules, then you probably have to admit that the political process and the process of... You know, uh, democratic lawmaking that leads to default rules has its own process issues. Um, but I, you know, I, I have to think that that's a better world uh, to, to live in if we're looking for an applicable legal standard um, than what someone in a room is scribbling on behalf of a corporation, even if on its face it doesn't look that unfair.
0: So, so to get to answers here, I mean, so the the engine I think that makes your argument work is that we have legal mechanisms for filling in things that are necessary to resolving a dispute between contracting parties when they haven't actually reached an agreement, when there really literally is nothing in the contract. And these are what we've been calling default rules. These are the, the rules that come in that govern something in the relationship when something has been left out of the contract, which is clearly necessary to resolving a dispute between the parties. And, and so we have a mechanism to, to kind of fill out the contract when nothing has been said. And so if that's already there, then what do we do When there is something in the contract, but we know that it was not actually that that term itself was not something that was uh, within even the knowledge of of one side of the contract uh, in in, especially in a well, maybe only in a boilerplate contract and. And to, to answer this you, you kind of put a metric on the space of contract terms right and, and you ask like you, you kind of put things into two categories that that for each term in a private contract, we can kind of measure its distance from what the default rule would be if that term were not there and so so a lot of them are, are really close uh, and um, so so choice of law I choose you know the contract says that if we if we litigate it's got to be in the state of Washington and and maybe the Default choice of law would have been something a little bit different, and I guess that's one that's close that's what you would call a nearby term um- may, maybe not i mean so and then and then there are other terms which are which are quite uh which are quite different um like giving up class actions through arbitration which is leads to a totally different kind of potential uh dispute resolution scenario than uh than if we hadn't had that term in there so um i don't know so you guys have hated the way that i framed everything so far, so i don't know if i <laughs> I framed this one right, but that yeah, that's, no, it doesn't that, sound
1: good to me. Yeah, what, not yet, but that but, is what
0: the paper says, right? The paper. Well, no,
1: I don't think, because you said the first th- the first question you've got is you, you've got you've got a contract uh, that has a term in it that that purports to address the thing that they now need to figure out. But you know, one of the parties has no knowledge of it and no awareness. Of it, and you say, so what do you do? And I think Jim's answer is you ignore it uh, that, because it's not essential. If it were essential, it would have been a thing they were that's, aware of. That's right, and it, so they ignore but, it. And right. It's, oh, good. Now right. it's been ignored.
0: It, if it's well, I, I don't know about ignored because you, you have to you have to look at it in order to measure its distance from the appro- from the uh, from the default rule, which would come in if it weren't there. And then the approach that we take in law to to dealing with it. Do do we use the default rule or do we go to the legislature and try to you know? If, I
1: thought the dis- Jim. If I thought there's the a big if there's a big brought-
0: distance, if there's a large distance, Joe, I th- this is what I read in the paper. Can I it's
1: interrupt a- you, Christian? When I. Jim, I thought the Please reason do. you introduced – I know, this is great. Turnabout is fair play. Um, he does this to me every week. Um, so, so, Jim, is the reason you introduced the distance between the default rule and, um, and the, um, w- what the boilerplate w- was or, or would commonly be is to figure out whether default rules is a, is a better way to approach this entire problem? than what? Th- then just then, just sticking with where we are now, which is just apply the boilerplate I didn't say yeah. that's not the distinction I was flagging, but anyway right
2: well that's yeah. I think that's the 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 heart of the the disagreement between the two of you. I mean, I'd actually think that uh the argument against enforcing boilerplate is the same, regardless of whether the default rule that would replace the boilerplate term is a distant default or a nearby default right um The reason I drew the distinction between those two kinds of default rules is to sort of directly address the argument uh, that we have to enforce boilerplate because the economic disruption will be too great if we don't. Um, To the extent that most of defaults are nearby defaults, the economic disruption is not going to be that great. And I think your example of a choice of law is probably a nearby default. I mean, yeah, so we could – uh, litigate in Washington state if we applied the boilerplate rule. Um, but no one's going to be like, Oh my God, we have to litigate in the place of the injury rather than the home state of the corporation. What an injustice, right? I mean, right. You know, <laughs> it happens all the time and it's, and it's not that big a departure from what the boilerplate term would have had you do. Um, and so that's an example of why there's not a whole lot of disruption. Prices are not going to double if you're subject to general conflict of law rules and not, uh, be able to pick your, your, uh, forum state. Um, the distant defaults, which are rare will cause more economic disruption because if class actions become something plausible again, uh, you know, that could actually have effects on the bottom line when it comes to, you know, sales of particular products and services. Um, so why is that preferable? Well, I mean, it's preferable because that's a sign that the, that either, boilerplate has been doing evil because class actions are good and <laughs> boilerplate getting rid of them is bad, or it's a sign that we haven't paid enough attention to the calibration of default rules. Um, and we should, right. If class actions are just, a uh, you know, an opportunistic plaintiff's lawyer, you know, uh, rent seeking operation, <laughs> uh, well then let's reform the law <laughs> of class actions. Let's not pretend we solve the problem through some Convoluted argument about the applicability of, of, of terms no one ever reads, um, and uh, you know to me it's actually one of the reasons maybe the default rules might be outdated or miscalibrated is because we haven't had to deal with them through the democratic lawmaking process because boilerplate has been our excuse.
0: <laughs> so that's you know I read this as as you this this metric which distinguishes nearby from from distant default rules as a way of kind of sorting to figure out whether you're going to look at the boilerplate to inform potential legal reform. You know, this is a signal that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the default rule common law. this is common law efficient efficiency kind of idea. Right. Uh, and uh, but if we kind of take that up and we say, well, that's the, the one role of one potentially beneficial role of boilerplate here is to signal when when our kind of um, uh, consumer contract regulatory regime through default rules is 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 out of whack with uh, the needs in the marketplace or potentially even the needs of the consumers Um, if we go this route though then boilerplate there's no incentive to write boilerplate anymore right and so we're going to end up losing that signal
2: that's absolutely right yeah i I think um but uh i don't think my idea wasn't so much i think it's an interesting idea but it actually it's it's your idea not mine <laughs> is that is that boilerplate is sort of you know an empirical basis on uh you know that enterprising law reformers can use to to show uh, where we need to rethink our default rules but i think even if we get rid of boilerplate altogether and we no longer have it as that resource the same result will obtain because um, People will be litigating, you know, disputed uh, contractual relationships and referring to default rules. And to the extent the default rule to which they refer is uh, consistently miscalibrated, courts will do something about it.
1: So, so you were taking a sort of internal. Would it be fair to say you were taking a a, a view internal to contract law? The reason not to enforce the boilerplate is because it's bad contract law. It, it's not. It, there isn't agreement. It's not a term of the contract. If the contract succeeds because they did agree about all the essentials, let it proceed, fill in any gaps, whatever they may be, uh which is how we deal with gaps generally, which are always there in in point of fact. There's always some stuff they didn't write down um then then that's good contract law. And if, as a consequence of proceeding in that manner you you learn from uh, large firms, for example, that serve mass consumer markets you learn that oh you know these default rules are not good for us in the following ways then you can debate that in the public forum that's appropriate for that debate um a legislature which is either creating a new default rule or having a hearing about the common law rules the courts are using or whatever it may be is that a fi- is that is that sort of a within contract law point of view
2: yeah i think that's i think i couldn't have put it better myself joe i think uh the notion is not that the sort of nearby default, distant default distinction is going to do any work with regard to the particular dispute between the particular parties to that agreement. It's whether it's going to it's it's something that's going to do work in the public sphere more generally. Um, you know, as as a as a signal or means or facilitator for uh, improved lawmaking. You know, within courts and legislatures. Um, and you know, the funny thing is you know, I'm not really a guy who writes on contracts very much. It's the only second article I've written on it. Um, I'm mostly an IP guy and I came to this through IP because I was, you know, really trying to think hard about copyright law and the balance of private and public entitlements and so forth. And then I realized it all just went away in contract law. Mm. Um, and, 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 and that the reason, and, and that the people within the IP world who objected to that, um, would often say, no, no, you know, uh, you know, fair use shouldn't be a, Waivable right, uh, you know, or or reverse engineering and all the other the other things that uh, were were being gotten rid of in these contracts. And my immediate reaction was, of course, it should be. You know, we shouldn't. You know, I mean, you can waive your right to a jury trial, you know, in a capital case. You know, how can you possibly not be able to have the agency to waive your right to, you know, reverse engineer a computer program? And it became very clear to me the problem was not an IP problem, as Joe says, the problem was a contract law problem, right? You know, it was that we were enforcing these things. Uh, regardless of whether they relate to IP or privacy or or consumer class actions or arbitration or or what have you, and so that's why I, I said no. This is all about contracts, and let's solve it within the contract law doctrine.
1: Now, the Turner theory is w- what I think is neat about what I think Christian's point was, and he'll correct me if I get it wrong. Is that? Oh yeah. Is that? E- is that? E- you you can <laughs> you can look at it from a different point of view, which is to say, e- even if courts persist in enforcing uh, boilerplate bad contract law, though that may be, we can observe the distance between what a court would have done had it used the default rule of contract law, which is available out there in some conception, and the actual boilerplate in a given set of cases. And we can look at that distance and say, see, there's an opportunity for reform. You can, you can improve the law by saying we need a new, uh, maybe it would be a compulsory default me, can rule. Can I
0: generalize this? Sure. So, if the basic problem is figuring out with respect to any particular question and in industry, and this is the problem, uh, uh, what the kind of efficient and and, and uh, governance solution is, uh, one solution to that is kind of Hayekian information theory. You know, you, you, this is – boy, wouldn't it be great if everybody read the terms – and they agreed on them. They exchanged a bunch of other entitlements in order to get the terms that they wanted. And the market would settle on an appropriate governance regime, sector by sector, business by business, uh, and, and in a way that no central planner could do because, uh, you know, the the, informa- the price mechanism and, and other term mechanisms, which coordinate into a kind of overall price, um, are doing a lot of that work, right? And the challenge here is that that's not working because... There is no like agreement over these terms and they aren't salient. And so then the backup solution is, well, if we're not going to enforce these terms because it's not doing that work, we can at least see what terms people write as a signal about what they want. And that information at least gets to decision makers who can now incorporate that kind of ex-ante generated – this is ex-ante before a dispute. Like this ex-ante generated information about at least what one side of the bargain wants. And for the consumer side, like that's something we can all be familiar with. Like what what may be imperceptible to a representative is what the industry wants because they're not in the industry. They don't understand it as well. Now, this is the – Put public choice aside, right? The other way that we could do this is just, let's just, you know, don't even look at the boilerplate. And in fact, one of the problems here is that if we don't enforce the boilerplate, it will go away because there's no incentive to write it. And so that information mechanism goes away. And instead, we're just going to legislate default terms in, a, in, in some kind of like UCC on steroids kind of thing. Like these are the terms. Uh, and for that, it's going to, you're going to rely on industry to get various industries to get information to legislators through ordinary mechanisms, which means you run into public choice problems, Right. Um, yeah. and, and so and maybe there are other mechanisms as well to get this, to get the right information to make the right decision. But I think the fundamental challenge here is that although you might like the Hayekian approach, this approach, you know, the, 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 perfectly efficient informational, like it's not available. It's not available because consumers don't have time to give you that information. Right. And so what do we, what do we do, uh, given, given that, um,
1: and the, and the answer, and it seems to me, if you look at the boilerplate for the answer that you say, well, at least you're getting information about what one side of the bargain wants. It's the side that can invest in figuring out the information because it gets to spread the cost of generating the information over all of the transactions.
0: Right. right. And, a, and um, a public
1: decision maker would be like, well, I'm an, I, I fly on airlines,
0: but I'm not in the airline industry, so right. actually that's useful to me. But, but yeah.
1: the, the problem with the boilerplate answer, it seems to me, or at least one problem that, that, it, that it could have, um, is that the answer you're likely to get <laughs> in the boilerplate is is... Is sort of Peter Baelish's answer in in uh, in, in uh, Game of Thrones. You know, what do you want? I want it all, right? I want everything. I want always to win everything. Um, which is what what it strikes me is the boilerplate is basically there to provide. Um, and and that's not a, you know it is information, but it's not a terribly illuminating uh, because I already knew that about uh, that side of the bargain. They want it all, um, just like and and I don't mean to critique or let the consumer off the hook, the consumer might say, yeah, what would I like? I would like to get it for free. Um, so, so Jim, if
0: we take your approach, then how, how do we get that information? If it's not,
2: it's a a good question. I mean, uh, uh, I really like this framing. Um, it's, it's, it's a contribution to boilerplate I hadn't really thought about. Um, and, and Joe, I like your example of of Peter Baelish. I mean, it's like, when you wa- it's like, it's like when you walk into a, you know, you're going to buy a car and they go, you know, how much do you want to pay for a car? And my answer is, I don't want to pay anything for it. Right. Like, you
1: know, <laughs> right.
2: I start. I started you giving me the car and then we'll go from there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I also like this train of thought because, you know, there's a very, very small chance that courts and legislatures won't read this article and do what I tell them to do. So it's interesting to think about what else boilerplate <laughs> might do if it survives. Um, <laughs> And I think mining it for information is a really, really fruitful thing um yeah, that benefit goes away if if we do take the approach I suggest in the article um uh I think the 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 cost of boilerplate that go away as Joe discusses would would certainly make that benefit's disappearance worthwhile um but supposing it sticks around, yeah, I think it's actually really interesting to actually sit and read these terms which i which I did um and uh, do reform mechanisms follow from the information available there? Eh, um, you know, public choice theory aside, they should, but public choice theory, I don't think we can put aside. I mean, everybody knows that Clax action waivers are buried in this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, that's not something that we need to mine for more information about. It's been the Supreme court a number of times, right? Um, and I have not seen the reform efforts, uh, that the article would hope for, right? The confrontation of whether class actions themselves are problematic, have not sort of, uh, emerged from, uh, those. And I'm not sure they would emerge if the court had refused to, uh, to do it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they would. I don't know. Um, but I, uh, the terms, though, and I think I may be disagreeing with Joe a little bit here. I don't think the terms are I want it all if you actually sit and read them. Um, most are nearby defaults that are slightly more convenient uh, for the company that drafts the terms, but not crazy onerous. Um, you know, the if you read arbitration provisions at JAMS or the American Arbitration Association, uh, they are really reasonable. They have special arbitration procedures for consumer company disputes that are plenty favorable, mm-hmm. it's not like in the old days where in the Hill versus Gateway case, um, which to me is even more crazy offensive than the ProCD case, um, what, what Easterbrook didn't mention in his opinion to that, in that case uh, was that under the arbitration clause, uh, the consumer would have to travel to Chicago to arbitrate, uh, pay an arbitration fee of four grand and recover no more than half of that even if they won. <laughs> so, like, there used to be, I'm, I want it all, right? I actually think it's not so much that anymore. And in fact, some of the boilerplate terms are actually favorable to consumers. I think that's because other regulatory regimes require them to be there. So, the
0: fact yeah, that you mentioned are, that in the article. Yeah, California, privacy.
2: Yeah. and— Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but um. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think part of the information I draw from reading boilerplate terms is that, ah, eh, these aren't so bad. Um, and to the extent that they uh, are offensive to sort of a well-ordered uh, sort of private law regime, it's it's either because it's the few distant defaults that really do change the landscape or it's the death by a thousand cuts, you know, and, and uh, the notion that, you know, even small inoffensive terms can really uh, – um, you know, lead to to giant wealth transfers when they're aggregated across a consuming public. You know, so I don't know that there's that much really interesting information to be mined of those that I've read anyway, which are mostly you know the, those relating to, to digital goods.
0: Can I make a, an efficiency distributive justice distinction here and and see maybe maybe this will take us somewhere somewhere new? So so on the efficiency side, like I, what I would want to do if. Ideally, if I can't rely on, again, Hayek and Price to kind of just work everything out, then, all right, so I'm a regulator. I read a lot of these contracts, um, and maybe I'm focusing just on one industry and one, you know, sub-industry or something, and I read a lot of the contracts in order to determine what one side of those transactions typically wants. And then I try to channel what I think consumers want. Maybe I study it. Maybe I consult. Maybe I just engage in introspection. And then I try to run hypothetical transactions and figure out, like, what would they have agreed to had there been a knowing exchange with equal power, et cetera? You know, how much would the consumer have traded off class action opportunities versus price, et cetera? Like, and and so I'm trying to, because we can't rely on Hayek, we got to use this kind of second best Notion of uh, of you know, central regulation, maybe right, and 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 the problem that runs into is is it's it's just not realistic that you would actually land on the efficient answer on on every industry because there's reason to think that every industry might be a little bit different and and that and that even sub industries might be a little bit different, so maybe that would be problematic. Now, I don't know. Maybe we could find out that there are there are not that many terms to think about and that consumer preference are actually pretty standard. I, I, it's something to think about, but that's the efficiency side. But I wonder too, if even if, even if we could, um, uh, maybe conduct that and we would find that actually consumers prefer, um, that, uh, for to pay maybe a dollar less on a, on a $200 consumer item, um, giving up Giving up their their right to sue, or limiting their consequential damages, or something which would make it so that if a problem does arise, they'll really be screwed. But they would rather have the dollar because they think the chances that they'll be screwed are really low. Um, There still might be this is law after all; it's something the states going to stand behind. There still might be a distributive justice argument for saying that um, society can't organize organize itself that way; that that it can't sacrifice people in that way. Even though you know this voting for dollars in this contract. Situation is creating this scheme in which we are not insuring one another, but we are kind of gaining a benefit on the backs of a few. And so
1: why can't we organize ourselves that well, way? If we take this, if
0: if we believe there's a distributive justice reason, not, if our theory of justice suggests yeah. as much, right? Then okay. then we might find that um we we might consult that theory and decide that with respect to this good and in this industry, it's just this is not the way that we're going to organize ourselves because uh, it is unjust under under whatever theory of justice we might have, uh, to force the predictable bad consequences to fall on relatively few rather than
1: spreading the costs. So you get into just a... It, this is the intuition behind workers' compensation, I suppose, in a sense, right? That, that you know, the vagaries of of 19th century tort doctrine were right. not doing a very good job helping us transition to the industrial production economy where you've got a reliable number of people getting injured in certain ways in the workplace. You just don't know which ones of them it's going to be. You know what's going to happen, but, but so you figure out a, another way to spread the cost that doesn't have these arbitrary wins and losses
0: yeah. of tort doctrine. And it kind of challenges the, the the Rawls' view, right? Because if you're thinking, it's almost by definition ex-ante behind a veil of ignorance because you, you don't know whether you're going to get screwed by this deal. And so the fact that people would choose a, a lower price – um, rather than remedies in the case they are one of the very few who end up with, with a very bad result, is kind of indicative that maybe, you know, that's what people prefer. And it's a challenge to the idea that they actually want to maximize the well-being of the worst off, right? This Rawlsian idea. Uh, so, but that's not the only theory of justice. You might have a theory which says, even though they're behind a kind of veil of ignorance, that's not good enough. They're, you know, we should. there's a floor to the amount of suffering that we should expect. Mm-hmm. And in some consumer contracting situations with some goods... Uh, there is a kind of suffering which can be imposed by agreements to these private things like getting injured on a cruise ship and being forced to litigate across the country or something like you know I, I, these kinds of things so i don't know is this a framing helpful at all it, it, in my mind the um, the distributive problem and the efficiency problem are are pulling in i don't know if they're pulling in different directions but at least there's a there's a there's a possibility problem with the efficiency thing the the idea that a central planner could actually do a good job um seems to me problematic. Um, but there does seem to be a good distributive reason. I don't know if I'm framing this all right, but.
2: No, I think, i I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, I have sort of two reactions. One is sort of within the, the sphere I'm trying to operate in, in, in my research on contracts and my writing on contracts. Um, I'm really trying to meet the law and economics folks on their own turf. And they tend not to care about the distributive stuff, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, I, you know, and so I'm really, you know, so in 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 that role, I sort of resist uh, judgments about the fairness or unfairness of terms, except at the real extremes, and sort of think about distributional versus efficiency uh, consequences of proposals, because I, you know, because I always think uh, that one should write articles, you know, uh, with an audience of open-minded skeptics in mind, you know, and so I. I, I, I try to sort of uh get as close to the skeptics worldview as I can. Um that said, I you know, I'm, i I uh you know, my sort of political views uh on the matter are, are different. Um I'm not sure whether regulation or non-regulation of boilerplate is the best place to house those distributional concerns, because, you know, as you say, you know the differences among industries and practices and consumer preferences, you know, might be so great that it would it would be hard to do it there rather than through, you know, social safety net programs or you know whatever else you would do as a backstop against the uh, the individual who imbued with lots of autonomy makes really bad choices.
1: <laughs> sure. It is interesting to to think that um, your 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 appetite for the enforceability of boilerplate might actually change depending on the context of the sort of the social welfare provisioning in your in your society. Um, that you might have a different attitude about boilerplate in Sweden than in, you know, uh, Virginia or Georgia or whatever, right? That because there's different it's a different cultural embedding of. Letting the chips fall where they fall, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and right. and your tolerance for for that kind of stuff. What what's the in the in the article, Jim? You're skeptical at one point about, and and it seemed to me the one one thing implicated by Christians' observations just now was was unconscionability as a mechanism for trying to get rid of the rough uh, edges or the sharp corners. You you seem and, skeptical and, 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 of that. And the the, related
0: I, and the related UCC provision, which. There, there were two, right, Jim? I mean, there's a UCC provision for that applies only to boilerplate, which is seems to be at least slightly more tolerant than unconscionability. But, but they're right. both you criticize both on basically the same grounds. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, and so, and I and I and help me understand that ground better because the the distributive justice point Christian was just making make, makes me think ah unconscionability does have a bigger office here to 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 handle, but I know courts don't seem to use it. So what's the
2: Right. I mean, I think the uh you know the the example of where we are paternalistic within contract law uh probably manifests in unconscionability and in sort of related concepts of sort of void against public policy. Um so, you know, the example that a lot of first-year law uh, students encounter is, is uh, surrogacy contracts, you know, the baby M case. Um the notion that uh even though you think you're making an informed choice uh, and everyone was represented by attorneys, uh, we are not going to essentially let you uh, trade away your fertility, you know, ahead of time. Um, you know, so that's that's an example of uh, what I would call, you know, the regulation at the extremes. Unconscionability, I think, is another example of regulation at the extremes. Um, and my main objection to it as a solution to the to the problems that I'm identifying is that, uh, first of all, it violates my rule about process versus content right i mean we're we're essentially relying on a rule that is going to only apply when it is so obvious that we have an extreme example of advantage taking um whereas most of the boilerplate that i read and i'm concerned about is not extreme examples of advantage taking uh even the distant defaults the class action waivers being the best example um you know i mean it's not crazy to think that someone might want a lower price and and not opt to have a right to participate in a class action you know uh um and so I I feel like unconscionability solves problems at the very extremes, uh, and often for the sort of distributional justice reasons that Christian's talking about. Like, I think that is a pretty good fit. Um, but again, my main concern is is the sort of death by a thousand cuts wealth transfers that occur through uh, provisions that, from a substantive unconscionability standpoint anyway, are never going to attract a court's attention.
1: Might they attract the court's attention under that other provision? We're dealing with boilerplate. Um, I can't remember the section number, but. Um, the, the reasonable uh, terms. Uh, yeah, provision. because, because yeah. The, you know, you mentioned Llewellyn and sort of a, a looking at reasonableness and if, from the a custom in the trade perspective, I suppose. But, but if you think about reasonableness in, in something that's a little bit more demanding about about being two-sided and not one-sided, it's not reasonable if it doesn't meaningfully respect the interests of both parties. Um, and that if you really brought that to bear, uh, wouldn't that rule out even some of these near default um, uh, uh, boilerplate provisions?
2: I don't know. I mean, so let's let's take, you know, uh, consequential damages waivers, for example, which are pretty, pretty frequent. Um, you know, is it unreasonable? Well, it all depends on what the consumer got out of giving up. Uh, the right to, to consequential damages. So th- this is like uh, if I get a
0: computer and I waive consequential damages, meaning that like if, if something goes wrong with the computer and that leads to other damages, I, 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 I might be able to get, if I can get consequential damages, I can get like work interruption, all these things other than just the price to repair the computer.
2: Right. right. I, I'm just and trying to
0: for people who don't yeah, know that. Yeah, no, thank
2: there. you. And 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 the predicate there, which people often ignore, but I think is really important, is of course that the other party had to be aware of your special circumstances that led to these unexpectedly high mm-hmm. consequences. Um which itself is an issue if it's a mass market contract where you're not actually talking to the other party at all. Right, right. But but setting that aside, uh um you know, to to uh to return to Joe's point, is it unreasonable on its face to have waived the right to receive those damages? Well, it's a function of how good a deal did you get in price in response, I guess, to your your willingness to waive that. And
1: um, it's certainly part of an answer. I guess the other thing you could try to fold into the answer is what were the information collection options of the seller that would have been and that they could have spread the cost of over all the buyers, right? If they'd had a few more radio buttons for me to push on the buy page for that computer where they asked me questions that might make it clear whether or not I was in a, speci- a person especially likely to experience some of those hardships, um, and they could have adjusted the price dynamically as a consequence, you know, maybe that, maybe that, it, maybe it is awfully one-sided for them to just say, nope, no one gets it.
2: I guess, um, I, the question then I becomes one of sort of information costs again, because if that's the case with regard to consequential damages, then it's probably the case with regard to, you know, uh, warranty provisions and, and all the other stuff. And, and eventually there's just too many darn radio buttons. Um, <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, and, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, an uh, individual, I mean, one of the, one of the challenges in, in the case law is that we tend to almost always to be dealing with one specific boilerplate provision. That's, that's at the heart of the dispute of the case. Um, And the point of the previous paper I wrote on contracts is that, yeah, and that's one provision among, you know, tens of thousands of words of other provisions. And so if we isolate it, we could say we could make decent arguments as to whether it seems reasonable or unreasonable and and that uh, either the consumer should have read it and known it because it's only, you know, two sentences long. Or on the other hand, the firm should have actually presented radio button options for it because, look, you know, there's three categories of, you know, warranty and you could have picture poison. Um, but in the actual mass market context, of course, you're entering to lots of these every day. And, uh, you know, who knows which provisions are the ones which should reasonably be made more salient, uh, particularly because price of course is the ultimate dumping ground for whatever, you know, does or doesn't make it into the boilerplate. And you never know, you can never isolate what deal you got on price because of this one isolated boilerplate provision to which you, you know, uh, at least
1: notionally agreed. Fair enough. Very interesting paper. Very well written too, by the way. Very brisk and lively in its oh, presentation. Didn't you think you. so, well, Christian? Oh, absolutely. It's
0: it's an easy read. It's an easy read, and yeah. and but but On a really fascinating subject that makes you really think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Well, well, thanks, guys. I, I think um, you know, particularly when you do associate dean duties, if you don't write briskly, you don't write at all. So <laughs> <laughs> something to be said there. Um, I actually, I was a little worried um, that it was too snarky at points. And so as I put it through the publication process, I, um, I need to take a second look. In, in particular, there's a, there's a part where I deal with what I call private paternalism, where I kind of lay into Omri Ben-Shahar a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, and I actually sent him the article <laughs> a few weeks ago saying, hey, this is coming up on SSRN soon. And um, if someone had criticized something I'd written to this extent in this tone, I'd probably want a heads up. And so, you know, let me know if you know, you have a response and, you know, so did you get a horse's
1: head in your office? Or I, uh, no,
2: I haven't I haven't I haven't heard back yet. But this, <laughs> There was a car sitting outside my house for like an hour yesterday. Oh, and so who knows? Um, so
0: yeah. there could be some further de-snarking.
2: Yes, there may be snarking, and I, you know, obviously, I love any any input you guys have on snark or anything else in, in the piece. Uh, it's I think it's probably a year off before it hits print, so there's there's plenty of time to to rewrite it.
1: I, I, I have to say, it, and maybe this is just a sign of the degradation of the culture generally, um, <laughs> uh, as so many things are. I, I didn't experience it to be even remotely the least bit snarky ever. Oh, oh okay. Now that could just be because uh, you know my my taste buds have been so decimated by the the helpings of of you know five chili pepper snark levels and everything else i read that that i can't see it anymore but uh but it sure didn't start maybe it's a the, start maybe game. it's the abuse that you take on
0: this show you think that's maybe. just the, that's the regular amount of snark and abuse that one should expect in this in this industry right exactly what what are our default assumptions about the proper <laughs> proper level of snark
2: with uh, which yeah, well, we there, treat one another well, you know, they're informed by our past experiences with snark, like everything else. And, you know, Joe's, Joe's are probably, you know, shockingly high. Yeah. Well, we're,
0: we're doing what we can on this show to to lower the <laughs> level of discourse and increase the level <laughs> of, of snark and, and disrespect we show for one another, at least between the two of us. I think we try what? to we we do respect our guests, though, right, Joe? We I do was gonna say, much I, more I than really, we respect each other.
2: Snark. I haven't experienced much snark in the conversation, but it's been very entertaining to to hear the two of you going back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. this was awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it.